This is the Child Deception Podcast powered by Awana. My name is Ross Cochran. I am so, so glad you're here. Guys, I'm going to be honest. This is a personal episode for me. Um, I am joined by John Tyson. John is a pastor in New York City, and many of you know him, but for those of you who don't, John, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you so much. Love Awana. So happy to chat, mate. I should say welcome back. You were, you and Matt Markins, our president and CEO, had a conversation a little while ago, and that's where you, yes. I got the chance to meet you at a mm-hmm. gathering of leaders um, out in South Carolina. So, you know, John, there are a bunch of different directions we could go. And mm-hmm. the reason I start by saying that this is a personal conversation, I read Intentional Father, which is one of your books, which came out in 2021. Uh, my son is uh, three and a half at the time we're having this conversation. Yes. Um, but the entire time I'm reading this book, I'm thinking about all of the different things that he could wind up doing, mm-hmm. all of the different moments that we could wind up um, having yeah. that you outline in the book. It's this fantastic discipleship program that lines up with Primal Path. Now, I want you to let folks know who haven't heard about the Intentional Father, Primal Path, what those words are so that uh, it doesn't feel like a vocab lesson that somebody didn't study for who's listening. Um, yes. But I want to talk about the scope after that. So for people who haven't heard, can you let folks know about Intentional to Father and Primal Path? Yes, Intentional to Father uh, is a book I wrote um, to basically help dads, uh, determined but overwhelmed dads, become the kind of dad they want to be. I've never met a dad who says, "My, jo- I want to screw my kid up, but a lot of folks don't have the tools they need. Uh, in the book, I basically said there's five kinds of fathers, irresponsible fathers uh, who don't, who literally just refuse to acknowledge that they have brought an image-bearing child of God uh, onto the planet. Uh, then you get ignorant fathers. They don't know what to do. And so a lot of damage can happen because dads just do not know how to empathetically enter into the life of their kid and walk them uh, into maturity. Then you get inconsistent dads, dads who are torn in and out of the child's life, either by brokenness or ambition. And this can be very confusing for kids because I don't know why the dad leaves. Kids often think it's them. So uh, the next level is involved dads. This is your typical great dad. Um, has the sex talk, teaches the kid to drive, teaches uh, yeah the basics of life. But it's from a general perspective, not a customized, personalized perspective. But there's a layer above that, which is what I call becoming an intentional father, which is asking God, who is the child you've given me? What do they need? Why have you entrusted me with their heart, their life, their destiny? Then how do I build a custom discipleship path based on ancient wisdom, biblical values, and who they are to help them walk from adolescence into adulthood skillfully uh, with biblical conviction? So that's what the book, The Intentional Father, is about. The, uh, the primal path is what I took my son through, um, which is the lived experience and is now actually a discipleship curriculum for fathers and sons to enable a dad to be able to do that. I just called it the primal path because I try to come up with something that sounded reasonably masculine to motivate my 12-year-old son to want to spend time with me. Um, Most societies, I think a lot of dads, when they look around, and actually this is getting so much attention right now, so many books coming out on this, um, so many magazine articles coming out on this, basically recognizing we have lost our capacity to form good men for the sake of the world. We just like, and we're we're like, what has happened? Well, here's what's happened. Every society in history, except modern post-Christian society has had a pathway to walk boys from adolescence into adulthood, to navigate the complexities of the changing biology, psychology, social setting, and to help them do that in a, with a plan and with guides for how to do it. 
So that's what the Primal Path is. The book Intentional Father is How to Be an Intentional Father by coming up with some plan or pathway. Uh, again, my book's not called the, the Perfect Father. I am not a perfect dad. You could t- interview my kids. They'll tell you. But I think both my children would say my dad was intentional, which means he didn't wing it. He really saw who we are and tried to come up with a plan to help us navigate the shadow of the valley of the teenage years. The Primal Path, one last layer, the Primal Path Discipleship Program is going back and coming up with um, all the things you need to walk with your son uh, over the course of these five years. So that's sort of, that's the thing. That's what we've been working on. It, if it sounds comprehensive, it's because it is. It's and not comprehensive. It's intentional. That was a joke. Yes, yes. That was good. That was good. That was good. <laughs> because one of the impressions that I got, you know, and like I alluded to earlier, my kids are young. My oldest, my yeah. daughter is seven and a half, but I'm reading this and thinking there's plenty in here that I could, I did start doing when I went through it and my daughter was five at the time. Yeah. yeah. And what I'm hopeful for just in hearing that if people stop listening to this podcast and go to the show notes and check out some of that material, which is all linked right there, wherever they're listening, that is a win for this conversation. However, what I do hope is that people keep listening because you can, the show notes are going to be there um, at the end of the podcast because I want to keep diving into some of what we, you just laid out in the discipleship of our sons. Yep. Because you make a couple of interesting distinctions there. One of which you spoke about this, you wrote about this in the book. People can identify, people are identifying right now. Um, man, what, you know, uh, as a song would say, where have all the good men gone? Um and you talk about the difference between being a good man and being good at being a man. Can you help those who are listening understand what that difference is? Yeah, I mean, I think several people who are involved in uh, the men's movement have have pointed out. So one of the big questions I had, and I've talked to several folks engaged in, in Promise Keepers, um, I've got, you know, I, I wasn't involved in Promise Keepers. I was a bit too young. Um, but I, ha- I have no axe to grind and only admiration for what I think they attempt to do. When I look at the seven promises of Promise Keeper, I'm like, dang, what a world we'd live in if men kept those. But I, 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 did, I did try to um, ask the question, like, what, what happened? Um, how, based on all of the momentum, filling stadiums and so many books that have been written is the typical Christian man viewed as a smiling, passive, nice man, just trying to keep the peace and keep everybody happy without any sort of strength or vision or edge to him. And um, if you were to say, you know, what is the typical Christian man? I think like our world would say, it's a quiet, passive guy secretly struggling with porn and anger, slightly disengaged, showing up out of obligation in his world. What a tragedy. Yeah. How do we go from Jesus Christ uh, weeping over cities, turning over tables, calling Pharisees sons of hell and brood of vipers, the tenderness uh, to look at, Mary after the resurrection and call her by name. How do we take a man of that vision, compassion, courage, fierceness of heart and reduce him to an overwhelmed, tired dad trying not to sin? 
what a tragedy. And so I think the reason that um, so many young folks have sort of lost interest in becoming a Christian man is they think, I don't want to be a good man, some bored, repressed, overwhelmed, struggling, sad man who probably wishes he could sin a bunch but probably shouldn't. Like how did how did I, I don't want that? So I think it's very important that we reclaim a, a vision of Jesus as the best man who's ever lived, who lived from both his both sides of his heart, uh, who had both courage and compassion, um, had a meta vision for the kingdom, yet staggering personal vision, who taught like a sage, fought like a warrior, loved um like a wild man, had the heart of you know, I mean, was yeah. a prophet. So my point is I want men to be good at being a man, to live the way that Jesus calls us to skillfully, wholeheartedly, and not just some person with sort of like a beige moral layer over their slowly dying hearts. And again, I sound really harsh, but I have talked to thousands and thousands of men. I've been a pastor for 26 years now. I've worked with students. I've worked with young adults. I've been a senior pastor for 18 years. And I'm telling you, the typical man is not doing well. So again, I want to make sure that our sons have something to aspire to. And that person is the person of Jesus. Yeah. Because I think what most of our audience who's listening, who most operate in a children's ministry context, most of what the sound you hear is them yelling, yes, please. Because Mm -hmm. most of what they are hearing and being feeling is this idea of I'm supposed to sort of just teach this vague sense of morals, this vague sense of, Hey, be good. Yeah. Be good. Be nice. Be good. Be and nice God will let you in kids. heaven. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And instead, but there's this crying out, what true discipleship looks like is to show them and teach them the person of Jesus. You've described before about how, li- how Jesus is beautiful. Life with him is beautiful. And there is, no shortage of amazing stories that we can tell about that that do work to change not only the church's perception of what uh, life with him looks like, but the world's perception of what life with him looks like. Um, so there was such a specific moment that this book comes out, but also that Primal Path began to really gather up a lot of attention. And I think about, you know, I'm not going to try to Put words in your mouth but there's sort of this three distinct moments that stand out to me which was the context of your own discipleship journey and what it meant for you to being a man the context of um primal path and shaping the this experience for your son but now this thing that you made as you said for your son where you named it something that was vaguely masculine to make your 12 year old interested that has become a movement and i'm curious what you feel like has changed in terms of needs of discipleship of of our sons and what you feel like hasn't changed and what men need over the course of that time. Which it's, it is really interesting. You know, I did this for my son because I loved him. End of story. I just wanted to give my son something better. So I had no, I had no grandiose plans of some, like, I think I can say with like real integrity, I didn't plan to write a book. Yeah. I certainly, I was actually done with it and I was having um, dinner with a friend of mine and I'd just come back from Spain walking the Camino de Santiago with Nate. And uh, he said, you know, how are your feet? I'm like sore. <laughs> and um, he's like, wow, man, you've got like fires of stuff you went through your son. And I said, yeah, man. It was like I'm, I'm, I'm tired from doing all of that. 
I'm really looking forward to moving on to some other products. Uh, sorry, some other projects. I wanted to write a book on sexuality and all the you know confusing stuff in our world. He said, "You, you mean that's it? You're just going to leave it on your computer?" And he goes, "Man, that wasn't for your son. That was that was that was for a whole generation of kids. Like, I really want to urge you to." take what you've done um, that you've put a lot of hard work into and share this with our father. So again, I, I was just like, love my son, want to give him a great experience growing up, help him be a man and then uh, move on. So yeah, it was, I, I was trying to respond. And then I got a couple of prophetic words. I'm charismatic, you know, and uh, had a couple of people share stuff to me that was just like, Oh man, I think God's in this. So, so then I said, I want to try and steward this. So it, that's like a little bit how it happened. Um, what, what do I think has changed um, well, I will say this. I think COVID had a profound impact on young people. And uh, so if you're young, so this is uh, about children, if you've got a six-year-old kid, half his life is, is like COVID-related memories, uh, probably some measure. of I, I remember so clearly our church didn't meet for 16 months uh, during COVID in New York. We just couldn't get somewhere to meet. And I remember the first Sunday back um, talking to our kids past and just saying, how'd it go? And she said, really rough. So what happened? She said, these are COVID babies having separation anxiety because they've spent all this time with their moms. And I was like, man, I never thought of that. So I think COVID had a huge impact um, being on a screen, social isolation. So I think those things accelerated problems that existed. Um, I think I would say as well, I think here's what's more challenging now. Um, The same is the basic tenets of secularism, which are discipling our kids to live in a world without God. You know, secularism doesn't care what you believe as long as you believe it in your heart. You can't express public faith. Um, but the problem is Jesus is Lord, not of your heart. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And uh, so that creates all sorts of conflicts about how you show up as a disciple in the real world. Hmm. Um, so that that stuff's the same to me. Secularism, privatization of faith, well, without God. Um, I tell you what I think has accelerated. The sexuality and gender conversation is more complex now. I mean, if you had told me I was going to do something controversial, which was to help boys channel their energy away from all the horrible things happening in society, using their parents' strength badly into something redemptive for the common good, and that people would think that was a problem, <laughs> that I don't think I would have seen that 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, so I think sexuality and gender, I think anxiety has has become a a generational force. I think a lot of that, uh, again, if you're, when you're older, like I remember, I remember the um, George was George Bush and Al Gore hanging Chad's Supreme yeah. court deciding an election in America. Yeah. So, you know, Good I'm not times. freaking it. Yeah. Oh, great times. <laughs> I'm not freaking out about Trump the way a 17 year old is, is freaking out about Trump versus Biden sure. because I'm like, Hey man, I understand that politics, this is a part of the American life cycle. But for someone who's young and their whole experience has been political turmoil, uh, a racial reckoning for historic injustice, um, the rise of confusing uh, sexuality, like their experience is nothing but instability, trauma, confusion. And when you are young, you want to fit in. You do want to be kind. And when the world is uh, telling you, A, that your Christian identity is toxic, you're not going to want to be that. That's going to carry uh, shame that is very hard for a young person to understand. And B, you're going to want to try on a bunch of other identities that get social applause and acceptance. And so it makes it very, very hard. And I, and I think the biggest thing is parents just don't feel like they are equipped to address the multitude of those issues. So, yeah, a lot of similar issues 
uh, that I think guys in every generation have faced sex, money, power, loneliness, self-acceptance, shame. What's different? The acceleration of uh, um, secular distinctives that, uh, that, that are forces, absolute forces that parents cannot get around. Listen, you can lock your kid in a room, homeschool them, only show him VeggieTales through whatever, and your kid is going to find uh, secularism leaking through the wall. So we have to respond to that, and uh, I think that's probably some of the biggest differences. Yeah, that's – so to lean into one of the things you talked about of, you know, Awana came out with a book a few years ago called Resilient – and mm. um at the same time uh the barna group <clears throat> came out with a book called uh, faith for exiles yep and i'll use faith for exiles language um which was they use this language of screens disciple yes and for um i'm curious how when you talk about the acceleration or when you talk about yeah. screens disciple or when we talk about these three forces in discipleship which are yeah. the rapid acceleration of of technology, the breakdown of the family and the shrinking church. The way that those impact men or our sons are distinct. Yes. Specifically with screens, we see the products of rage. We see the products of this, uh, you were talking about earlier, like this, this vague sense of masculinity, but not knowing what to do with it. Can you help folks understand, you know, if they have boys in their class or in their Sunday school or in their Awana program, what are they supposed to do with this sense of this is a, some, a child who has experienced an entirely different world than I have? I think if I remember that research correctly, it was like 2,850 hours of sc screen time a year and 153 hours were Christ-centered or biblically based. Yeah. So it's like, so, yeah, who's going to win? Who's going to win that formation of a worldview? Um, so, yeah, I think... Um, I think that's good. Uh, one of my mentors has this little phrase. Uh, he, he says, content is king, but eyeballs are God. And I think that's interesting. Uh, small G God, yeah. uh, which is like, you can have the best content in the world, but if kids aren't getting access to it, well, then what, it, it just doesn't matter. So the, ch the challenges have, um, you know, psychologists tell us, developmental psychologists tell us, boys develop later than girls. So, uh, you know, a lot of the elite kids in the Northeast keep their sons out. They won't put the kids in school when they're three. They'll wait as late as possible because boys just can't sit still in class. They're very, very physical. The modern education system uh, is is primarily fueled by, by women. Well, listen, man, I'm a huge believer in empowering women in all areas of life. But it's not a system that's designed to reward boys. It doesn't, for the most part, address their stage, their learning style. So they're often penalized against uh, being educated because they won't sit still. And it's because, you know what, they're not designed to sit still just yet. And if you put them in school too early, it'll, it, it can take the edge off their hunger to learn and grow. School becomes a place where their, their, little, their little gifts get muted and it can inhibit their desire for learning. So I think you've got to understand that boys are going to bounce around quite a bit. And they may be demoralized. Number two, um, everything's been gamified. They've been discipled by algorithms, which means they're used to having things they love fed up to them repeatedly and, and, a, and an exciting um, dopamine-fueled little, little journey happening every time they get online. And we just can't compete with that in real life. So I did a bunch of research. I, I, by the way, a wonderful book called Indistractable. 
I think this is the best book I've read on paying attention. The chapter on screens and children, maybe it's chapter 24. Uh, um, it's a wonderful book. And so there's research on what is a healthy amount of screen time. You know what the hour is? Yeah, sorry, the, it's an hour a day. Okay. A kid, a, a kid can gain game for an hour a day and get the benefits of a sense of community and connection. Sure. Um, a sense of something beyond his little world. But show me a game that is designed to say, it's been an hour. Thanks so much. See you tomorrow. <laughs> it's not, man. People are trying to come up with content to keep our son's eyes glued to the screen as long as possible. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Even though Amazing Faith grows in midweek ministry, at Awana, our mission is to reach as many kids as we can with the gospel. Why stop at midweek when so many families visit church on the weekend? So we created Bright, a biblical weekend curriculum for pre-K and elementary age kids. Bright ignites kids' interest in the Bible through activities for all kinds of learners, vibrant videos, and big questions to make their wheels turn. And leaders love it because it's flexible for all types of settings. Plus, we include helpful tools that cover in-the-trenches topics, like having healthy small group discussions and handling tricky behavior. But most importantly, Bright is centered on the Bible. Every lesson points straight to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Download a free four-week series at brightcurriculum.com to see how Bright can foster lasting faith in the children in your ministry. Hey, before we get back to this episode, I need your help. You know, we want this podcast to serve you and your ministry in the best way possible, but to do that, I need to learn a little more about you. So wherever you're listening, you'll see a link for a survey. And if you answer those questions about yourself and your ministry, that will dramatically help the show. And to make it even more worthwhile, we'll randomly select a few folks who fill out the survey and thank them with an Amazon gift card. Full details and rules are in the show notes. So thank you for listening. And now let's get back to the conversation. In some other research uh, I came across in a book uh, called The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter, he talked about how many times we touch our phones a day mm. and, um, you know, almost 3,000, but power users touch their phone close to 5,000 times a day. So in terms of a formative habit, which is, you know, repeatable, unconscious, cued and rewarded, I mean, we're, we're, we've got an uphill battle. So I think I don't think the answer is like, um, a, when you want to win a kid's heart, you don't tell him everything you do sucks. If you were my age, we never had screens. You know, um, you, you can't do that. So I think it's a really good enter- impression, by the way, just for the record. <laughs> Did I say that? That sounds like me. Um, I think you've got to enter in a little bit. Um, you got to put, you know, you've, one of the, the challenges I think a lot of guys face is self-regulation, the ability to, you know, emotional, physical self-regulation. So you're wanting to sort of train them. I I don't think you're ever going to get them off it. Mm-hmm. So you have to help them have some measure of self-regulation, teach them through it. So I think you can you can utilize it. I think there's value in connecting them in their world. Um, but I think it's ultimately our job to acknowledge, but not um, coddle to. And I think that means that you've got to do your best to win their hearts, to teach well. 
you know, I think it's a sin to make the Bible boring. Mm. I think it's a sin to take the living, active word of God. Now, I don't, again, that doesn't, I also think it can be unhealthy to make it entertainment. But you've got to pray over this word. You've got to believe them. You've got to sh- you've got to work to show how this applies to their heart, and you've got to be patient. And I think a lot of times guys are involved in in environments, younger guys, and all they're told is sit still. Why can't you concentrate? Don't repeat their school experience in the environment you create. Create an atmosphere they love to step in. They seem they seem valued, cared about. Connect with their online world, and then work hard to win their heart in the real world. That's probably what I'd say. Mm. So the, the other place that I wanted to take this, you know, you're, you're a pastor in New York city and your friend, uh, Darren Whitehead, when he spoke at the child discipleship forum in 2021, he talked about, um, how I'm going to paraphrase him, but he basically said that in his church, he now talks about the fact that they're in the business of counter formation. They begin with the assumption that someone's walking into the church, kids are walking into the church formed by culture. Um, you are seeing what I would argue is probably uh, a standard that the rest of the country is following suit in being in one of the biggest cities in the country. Mm-hmm. I encourage people to set aside, this is, not a, this is a factual thing talking about cities' influence over the rest of the country. I'm curious how much you see counterformation if you agree with sort of this thesis from Darren and what do you think that means for someone who may be listening in a more uh as Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin will call it a more gospel rich part of the country where maybe they're not feeling the same tension that you might feel every day uh, I would say this there is no gospel rich part of America if you're a kid that doesn't exist where is this where is this gospel is it is this Franklin Tennessee this gospel-rich part of America, because I can tell you this: all the kids in Franklin, Tennessee. By the way, that's where uh, my I was. I lived in was a youth pastor, and uh, my son was born. I love it there. Um, those kids are watching the same videos as kids in New York City. The algorithms are feeding kids the same stuff, the same agenda. Um, so I'll, I'll just give you an, an example today. Okay, so I'm driving in a taxi down the West Side Highway down a Wall Street this morning. And every hundred yards, there's a uh, a pride flag with a trans triangle in it. Now, you ready? Two years ago, there was no trans triangle. Whose permission was granted for the United States? Who, like, whose consent said, I would now want to recognize this as something that is celebrated for one month a year? Now, this is not my commentary on gender. I've got a lot of thoughts. I've preached on this. You can look at my Controversial Jesus series. Um. But I'm just like, we don't live in a neutral world. The, mm. the myth of neutrality is a fantasy, and divide technology as an equal distru- an equal discipler of secularism everywhere it goes. So we're all pulling from the same cultural themes, regardless of your location. Now, you as a parent may work very, very hard. You may be in a community that has a, a what I call you know the Christ haunted South or a veneer of a veneer of. Uh, uh, moral restraint or the leftovers of the classical um, virtues from the American founding, but your kids aren't living in that world. Now, you may have them in your home, but I'm telling you, the education system is not geared to make disciples of Jesus 
seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't matter where you are. Now, some places it is is more aggressive, but I just want to say there's no there's no neutral places there. So yeah, so number one, it's not just the culture we're at war with. We're born with sinful nature, so you've got to be formed. You know, uh, you've got sin to wrestle with, yeah. and um, you've got pathologies and issues from your families that you grew up in. So there's a lot a lot of work to be done. So I say this: all discipleship is counterformation because there's no neutral areas of formation. So um, I think we need it. What what I think is important, actually, what I love about um, Awana scope and sequence, is their 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 logical sequential desire to fill in the gaps. And I'll, I'll tell you this: I've got a lot of um, folks who minister in the parts of the country that you're talking about, and I'm telling you right now, kids are coming up biblically illiterate, illiterate. You know. Um, they don't. They they don't. Couldn't name the Ten Commandments. They couldn't tell you where the Sermon on the Mount is located. So let's just stop right there. Not fringe stuff, like where does Paul uh, lay out the Greco-Roman household codes in the epistles, and which Roman philosopher is he quoting? Mm-hmm. No, I'm just talking like the Ten Commandments and uh, the Sermon on the Mount. People say like, I don't even know where that is. So there's a lot of work for discipleship to be done. If I was to say. Um, the fundamental issue, if I could boil it all down, all down, all of secularism, all of the issues, all of the things that are happening right now, I would say this. The war is for the authority of the Bible. That's it. Mm. That If you want to get one keystone practice right, it is training your kids to love God's word and see it not as a source of oppression, but as a source of life. And the, the original lies, did God really say? And uh, now we've got half of the progressive church saying, no, he didn't either. You know, so I think establishing biblical authority, I think, is is very, very important. And again, I, I'm like, you know, I have very conservative theology. I'm not a fundamentalist, but I've, you know, high regard for the word of God. But if I was to start one place, that would be it. Now, you can do it wrong. You can weaponize the Bible against your child, teach it poorly, and make him hate the scriptures. What a tragedy. You can use the Bible um, as a moral book to shame your child's behavior to make him compliant because you're embarrassed for their rebellion as a parent. Terrible. But when you preach Jesus and the kingdom of God clearly and beautifully, I think the heart melts in response because they were born to know him and live in it. So I think that's that's get your kids, help your kids love God's word, live under God's authority. Um, you know, I, I'm rereading a bunch of Keller stuff. I've got such regard for Keller. But um, he, he had this illustration. I've never heard him use this. It was, I had to put the book down. He said, um, here's, the, here's the issue of our culture today, okay? Romans 1, Paul's writing to the church at Rome. Rome, we don't, Rome is not like some little backwater. I want you to think of a bustling, massive, major city of a million people. It took 1,800 years before we had a city that big again. Amazing city full of adultery, temples, sexuality, debauchery, power, classism, racism. And he says, where does it all go wrong? They did not acknowledge him as God or give him thanks. So the, the essence of secularism is this, entitled, uh, self-defining entitlement as opposed to humility and gratitude. Okay, They did not acknowledge him as God or give him thanks. But, but here's Keller's insight. Okay, He says this, what is plagiarism? Plagiarism is when you take something that is belongs to someone else, sever it from the source, 
and use it like you came up with it. And he says the root of idolatry in the modern world is to take God's gift of life as if you came up with it without giving him credit or acknowledging him and use your life for yourself, plagiarizing your existence that belongs in humility and gratitude to the creator. Come on. <laughs> Come on. So what an insight. So I was like, you got to teach kids to submit to God and his word, be under his authority with gratitude and worship. Acknowledge him as God. Give him thanks. Don't become darkened in your mind, foolish in, in your understanding, and then move into those whole series of distortions. So again, I would put, now I'm just preaching, but I would put the emphasis on the one controlling inside of teaching your kids to love the word of God. I am smart enough to know to end a podcast there, but um, no, I got one more. It's been real. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's, here's where I want people to hear from this. Before John and I press record, we had this moment where we talked about, man, I can't believe we get to do this for work. And there are some of you who are listening who are probably saying something to the effect of like, John, I agree with you, but I don't know how. Or John, I agree with you, but I am tired. Or John, I agree with you, but that is too harsh. Or you don't know my context, or you don't know what that pastor is going to say, or that parent's going to say, or whatever. And I, I bring that up because I think it's important to land the plan on two ways. One, I hope people watch the video of this so they, they can see the joy in your face as you describe all of this truth. But also, because all of this truth, all of this work is so worth it. When, yes, you, yes. when you read the primal path, when you talk about the discipleship of our sons, you see the fruit in it. And what I imagine one of the most rewarding things going from this place that was just that you did just for your son and now you see is for a generation of kids you get to see the impact that it's had on that generation of kids now, now that it's been several years. And what I'm curious about, as you look at this generation of kids now, particularly our, the boys, is your son or people who have gone through this program, or I'll even broaden it slightly, the folks who are your son's age who have been intentionally discipled, how are you able to draw those distinctions between who they are as men compared to other men of this age? Because what I think is important for people to hear who are currently discipling a 12-year-old is, oh, hey, this is going to be worth it. And that's what this looks like when I'm done with this process. Please hear the air quotes person who's only listening to this five, seven years from now. Well, I'll say this, number one, you got to make sure you don't put pressure on your kids to meet. Uh, there's no direct correlation between effort as a parent and gratification in a kid. Or, I mean, you're running this through the grid of a human. Right. So um, I'd say you got to get the pressure off. Don't get your, don't get any self-righteousness. Well, oh, I'm an intentional father. Oh, how could you? You're not. Like that stuff will poison your kid, produce pride in your heart, and damage the whole journey. Um. There's also no guarantees, man. I mean, you can do this right as, with as much grace and love as you can and your kid will go off to college 
and lose his virginity the first week, get drunk the second week, smoke crack the third week, and then drop out of school the first week. There's just no, no. Um, we're in a war. There's no, there's no formulas here. The one thing I will say is this: um, there is one thing though, and it's about the authority you have in prayer for your kid. God is kind. God is merciful. And sometimes we throw a Hail Mary out and it works. But I want to tell you the ability to pray a prodigal home or pray your kid into his future. When you say, Lord, you have told me in Ephesians 6, 4 to raise my kid in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord and father, by your grace, I have obeyed your word. You told me to do this. I have come up with a path and a plan. I have loved them. I have sought to lift you up. I have preached Jesus in the kingdom of God. Now, God, you're up. I have obeyed your word, and I am asking you to honor your word, and I'm asking you to water the seeds that I've sown. That kind of confidence in prayer, it's, you're not, it's covenantal prayer, which we know nothing about. And in the modern world, there's just a kind of confidence that says, Lord, so, so to take Bible verses out of context, when you have not met the conditions of the verse and expect fruit from that verse, sometimes God's merciful and you just get it. Right. But there's other times when you obey the word and you live with integrity, it just gives you capacity to pray and believe and hope in a different way. And um, I, I would say that's the biggest joy I think I get. Um, it's like, Lord, I'm in a partnership with you for the future of these kids. Here's what's been sown into their life. Please activate this. Activate it. Uh, you know, I, I've got, <clears throat> I don't want to speak about this too long. I gave a whole sermon at my church on this, but one of the most extraordinary things, um, I went to the Asbury Revival, it was extraordinary. Um, and I preached at the largest college uh, Christian student thing right before Asbury. And I'd preached there in 2003, extraordinary response. Preached there in 2005, extraordinary response. Preached there uh, in 20, I don't even know what year, 2022, no response. And you know what I realized? There's, there was nothing to revive. I preached on revival. And I said, these kids never got, they never even got it. This is a generation of, ki of kids without a thing to revive. And um, so the difference between like, there's no seed to call upon the Lord to rain on, as opposed to, Lord, there's all of this good seed here. Please rain on these kids. So I would just encourage, I would encourage you, it's worth it to obey the Lord, period, to have joy in your heart that says, Lord, I wasn't perfect, but I really did try and honor your word. That also says it's never too late. It is never too late to pick up the mantle. And I always tell parents, hey, if you feel like you don't have a strong relational connection or your kids are rebelling, start in prayer. Do in prayer what you can't do in person. You are still and will be to the day they die, if they're 100 years old, that kid's father. And there is something sacred about that role. And I would just say start praying. If you need to repair the relationship, sometimes repairs are a coat of paint and uh, replacing a couple of beams. Sometimes repairs are a gut rental and it costs everything you have and takes two years. You've got to assess the damage and the kind of repair that needs to be made. But start in prayer, start to repair. And I do believe when you move, towards your kids with biblical authority that God's given you miracles happen. So I would just encourage people. It's never too late. Keep going. Start with prayer. Amen to that. Should we close in prayer? Please do. Should we close? What a wonderful transition. 
Okay, let me pray. Father, I just want to say uh, thank you for the time to talk about things that are so dear to your heart. Uh, Lord, we know with your very limited time on earth, just a few short years of public ministry and just a few chapters of the Gospels, you inserted and insisted in the middle of those, the story of the blessing in space for children. I want to say thank you for all of these workers who are seeking to love, disciple, care for the next generation. I pray that you will fill them with hope. I pray that you will give them perseverance, long-term vision. Lord, I pray that you give them grace for the ADHD, uh, the kids with special needs, the lack of uh, the ability to pay attention, the behavioral problems, the boredom, like all of those things, Lord, give them grace to see through behavior to the heart. And Lord, we really just pray, Lord, that you would start a move of God amongst the kids of this nation. Draw them to Jesus. Give them a vision of the kingdom of God. Help them to remember their creator in the days of their youth. And uh, Lord, we just covenant with you that we will not fail to declare to the next generation the wonderful works of the Lord. So please give grace, peace, and power to those who've listened to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank Amen. you very much, sir. No worries. Cheers, mate. So good to chat. The Child Discipleship Podcast is powered by Awana. Thanks to the donations of generous folks like you, Awana partners with 62,000 churches in 130 countries to make resilient disciples. When you give to Awana, you are investing in lasting faith. Young people who will engage the culture with the gospel and fearlessly lead the church into the future. To make a donation to this mission, go to awana.org slash donate. Subscribe to the podcast today so you never miss an episode and check out the show notes of today's episode for relevant links from this conversation, as well as information about other podcasts from Awana. The podcast is produced and hosted by me, Ross Cochran. Our theme song is Fresh Air by Christian hip hop artist Josiah Williams and Hits by Jude. You also heard All Let Go, provided by Josiah Williams from his album Rerouting 2. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.